invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we'll be on page 859 in the Pew Bibles. And as always, we will be making time for Q&R at the end of uh, my message today. And if we throw up the Q&R slide, maybe, there we go. So we have been having some, I've, I, if, you, if you've been with us for a while, I've got a little flip phone up here that I receive texts from, and it just, it just takes too long for your text messages to get to outer space and back, and sometimes we miss questions. Um, so I, we were trying out a new system this morning. This is called Slido. If you go to slido.com and type in R-E-V-C-D-A in the prompt, uh, you can enter your questions in there, and hopefully it works better, and uh, we'll, we'll take a look at those um, at the end. And that'll be up from time to time. So, um, Before we get started, I, I just I love, I love that Jackson has the humility to stop a song after he's already started it and say, hey, it's the wrong key, we're going to start over. Um, that's the kind of attitude that I love to see modeled in our church community. Uh, last week, I wrote, my, I wrote about 60% of my sermon on Wednesday, and then I came back on Friday to finish it, and I store my, uh, my notes in a Dropbox account online, and I sync them with my iPad. And it wasn't until about halfway through the message that I realized that my iPad had not synced with everything that I had written on Friday. And so the team in the back had a manuscript of my whole sermon, and I just had most of it. And I was about 20 minutes in, and I just thought, man, I feel like I'm missing stuff. And, you know, sometimes the way the Spirit works is I'll forget to say something or I'll feel like adding something. And I just think that's kind of God in the moment working in the room. Um, but in that moment, what I should have done was I should have paused and I should have said, hey, can I have that paper manuscript back there and have it run up to me so that I could have continued with the whole sermon as, as, as the Lord had led me to prepare it. But as I kind of investigated my heart this week, I realized that Pride was at the root of not wanting to look foolish last week. And because of that, I did not steward uh, our time well, and I uh, robbed us all potentially of what the Lord was doing in that moment. And I just want to apologize for that. That was not the way I should have handled that, and I shouldn't have succumbed to my own prideful heart in that moment. So uh, just ask your forgiveness collectively for not a great sermon last week. Thanks, Carl. I knew you would. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, um, you are so good to us in our frailty, in our uh, sinfulness, in our brokenness. I'm just, I'm grateful that I can stand before these people in my own brokenness and, and, and be, be accepted and loved by you and this community of faith. I pray that you would speak to us this morning by the power of your word, uh, by the things that you've stirred in my heart this week, that I would share them clearly and, and that I would be um, motivated by but what you want us to hear this morning. Help us to be drawn to you, Jesus, uh, as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... I, I work part-time doing video production, and a lot of the clients that I get are online, and, and uh, they'll, the, there's free, uh, freelancer websites where you can post a job, and then freelancers will bid on it. And a couple weeks ago, I saw a job uh, posted by a YouTuber, and this YouTuber uh, said that he was looking for a video editor for his channel that had a million subscribers. And in the, um, the price area, it said $10,000. And I looked at his channel, and he was this, he's like this 25-year-old, like, 
bodybuilder model guy, and he does videos on hair care and manliness. And I thought, man, could I do it? Could I even, can I try to, to edit this guy's work? And I said, for $10,000. And I thought, well, is that per video or is that per month? And I thought, either way, like $40,000 a month would be like an amount of money that I've never even made, considered making. And $10,000 a month is still a lot of money. And so I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. And uh, he wanted a test edit done, and so I, I worked with him for a little bit and did a test edit, and he really liked my work, and he was super excited about it. And then he said, uh, I've got $200 a video. And I went, oh, I can't work for like two days a week making this content for 200 bucks. And I was talking about this with my wife, and we were, we were in this place of like, you ever, you ever do that thing where you just dream about money? Like, oh man, $40,000 a month to edit these dumb videos? That would change our lives forever. Even if, I, even if I could only do it for a few months, that'd be amazing. And we'd pay off the mortgage and we'd get a new car. And the truth is, give us today our daily bread is a prayer that I just don't want to pray. I just don't like it. I don't want to pray it. I want lots and lots and lots of money because I think it will solve all of my problems. And I know that's not true, but I'm pretty sure it would be different for me. And I feel like maybe some of us also feel that way. <laughs> and this little part of this prayer offers us what I'm going to call four tensions about the way we understand money. And I think, I don't have a lot of answers for you as we're going to go through these tensions, but I think they're things that we need to sit in as followers of Jesus. The first tension that I want to look at in this verse is the word give. The word give brings up a tension between provision and work. And it asks the question, where do our resources come from? Because if we're going to pray this prayer, give us today our daily bread, we are admitting that God is the source of our provision, right? That God is the one that is giving us our bread. And we can convince ourselves that this is not true. Many of us, we have jobs, we work hard, we earn money, we bring skills and experience to the table. You know, we enter into salary negotiations and we talk about what we're worth. I did it last week. I'm worth more than $200 for the amount of work that that guy wanted from me. At least I think so. But when we read the Scriptures... In Hebrews 1, we read the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. See, my heart is beating in my chest because God wills it to be so. The energy that animates the whole universe emanates from Jesus Christ. I used a Star Trek analogy last week. I'm going to do it again. In Star Trek The Next Generation, they have something called the holodeck. If you're familiar, you know this. This is like uh, TV, but in the future. You go into the holodeck, and it creates a world. It creates a world of people and animals and plants and flowers and streams, and you can touch it, and you can taste the food, and the, if you fall in the water, you'll get wet, and it's all very real. But if the Romulans attack and the power goes out, all that stuff disappears. And this is what the world is like. Everything that exists, exists because of God. And if He just let go, all of it would go away. And this isn't meant to make us afraid, to make us fearful. Remember at the beginning of this prayer, who are we praying to? Our Father, our good good Father who loves us and cares for us and has already entered into a relationship with us. 
But one of the reasons that we can call Him our Father is because we are admitting that He is the very source of our lives. And so we, we say, give us today our daily bread, and we admit God is the source of our provision. But the tension comes in when we recognize that we're also called to work for our resources. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat." That feels pretty heavy. But notice that Paul doesn't say, what Paul does say is that if you're not willing to work, you should not eat. I've heard it misquoted as, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that's not exactly the same thing. There's many reasons why many people in lots of situations in specific seasons are unable to work. And that doesn't just mean earning money either. Stay-at-home parents are a treasure in this regard. But for most of us, most of our lives, we are called to work. This goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. This happens before sin and death enter into the world. This is part of God's perfect creation, that humanity would have a vocation, a calling, a job to do. And that job would provide resources. See, according to God's Word, work is a good thing. Tim Keller says, work is so foundational to our makeup, in fact, that it is one of the few things we can take in significant doses without harm. Indeed, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly, but directs us to the opposite ratio. Right? Like, we're, we're told, hey, you need to rest. And for our culture today, we need to hear that because many of us are workaholics. But the opposite error would be you need to rest a lot. Because once we rest a lot, and, and some of you in, in retirement maybe have found that, like, I don't have anything to do, and I'm bored, and I'm just kind of wasting away. I need to work in order to function well. Dorothy Sayers writes about work. She says, work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the, one, the thing one lives to do. It is or should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he offers himself to God. See, work, when we approach it with the right attitude, not only provides us resources to live by, but it's a way to enter into worship. Jesus says in John 5, my father is still working and I am working also. See, when we work, we are acting out the character of God. And this is why it can be so frustrating to be out of work in an economy where you can't find a job. And I've talked with many of you about that in, in different phases of your life of just the frustration, not just of not being able to pay rent or even not being able to eat out or take a vacation, but that it's being prohibited from pouring yourself out for the good of the creation and the glory of God. There's something in us that just needs that to feel whole. So when we pray, give us today our daily bread, we acknowledge that, yeah, we are gifted and talented, and we have experience and knowledge, and we are being called to apply those things to the problems of the world, to bring about the flourishing of humanity, to make money, to support a family, to give generously, to care for the poor, and it's still 100% dependent on God keeping you alive to do it. The second tension that we see in this passage 
comes from the words us and our. Give us today our daily bread. And this is the tension between self-sufficiency and community care. The question is, where, or who do our resources come through? Jonathan Haidt is a uh, psychologist, and he, write, he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind about why people are the way they are and why they disagree about things. And he talks about weird people, uh, W-E-I-R-D, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic people. We, most of us, fall into this category. And he says that most of the time when studies are done for a variety of reasons, they're done by researchers in Ivy League schools who have access to test subjects that fit a very specific demographic. They're Western, they're educated, they're part of an an industrialized country, they're relatively rich, and they come from a democratic um, governmental system. But he says that these sorts of people are statistical outliers. The kind of people that we are, people that are fairly self-sufficient Westerners, we're weird. We're very different than most people. And Haidt says, the weirder you are, the more you see the world full of separate objects rather than relationships. When it comes to our finances, this means that we see our financial responsibilities as our own. Our problems are our own, and our successes are our own. We don't tell people that we're struggling. We run up a credit card to keep up the pace that our friends have in their spending. Or maybe, on the other hand, we just feel a little bit of pride because our car or our jewelry or our shoes are just a little nicer than our neighbor's. But this is not how most of the world thinks, and this is not the way Jesus is teaching us to think in this prayer. This prayer is a community prayer. Give us today our daily bread. It has a relational dimension. It's easy to make the prayer about my needs. Give me today my daily bread. But what if God's going to meet my needs through you? What if your daily bread comes to my house? If we're praying this prayer as a community of God's people, it's not hard to imagine that resources might be given to specific people for the distributing to others. We read about this very thing in the book of Acts chapter 4. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all, for there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as they had any need. Depending on the the setting you're in, it's very important to say that this is not communism, which is fine. It's not. It's voluntary, right? But it is a recognition that the church is a singular organism. When you go to this potluck this afternoon and have some fried chicken, your mouth eats, but your toes are nourished. Can you imagine if if your kidneys just said, you know what, we're just going to get our own food? How well would that work? It wouldn't. We are a body. We are a people united as one. And and when we pray this prayer, we should be expecting that daily bread might actually come through another part of the body. But it's also bigger than just that. It's bigger than this community. There's a a societal dimension to this prayer. Martin Luther says it this way, it is a brief and simple word, but it is also very broad and comprehensive. For if you speak of and pray for daily bread, you pray for everything that is necessary in order to have and enjoy the same, and also against everything that interferes with it. Therefore, you must enlarge your thoughts and extend them afar, not only to the oven or to the flour barrel, but to the distant field and the entire land, which bears and brings to us daily bread and every sort of substance. See, Luther is saying that 
all of human society is woven together in such a way that the answer to this prayer requires the flourishing of multiple people. Today, we could add the truck driver and the grocery store and the oil refinery and the service station and the, uh, the tanker and, and, and hundreds and hundreds of other points in the supply chain and the, all the tools that are used in those points, in those industries. And we're feeling it right now, right, with inflation and supply chain issues and geopolitical turmoil and weird government policies. All these things affect our ability to get our daily bread. But the thing is, is this is the way it's meant to be. We are supposed to rely on one another. And we've lost that understanding of interdependence in our culture. We see our society coming apart And for some of us, it provokes us to disengage, to abandon our society. Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, writes, if we are hopelessly our own and belong to ourselves, then there can be no substantial common good for us to work toward, politically or socially. The best we can do is try to stay out of each other's way. Instead of a common good, we have billions of private goods. But see, that's not the way we were designed to function. That's not the way God created humanity to live. We're meant to be united. We don't live unto ourselves. We are inescapably connected to one another and to humanity at large. And our flourishing, our daily bread, is interdependent on the flourishing of the world at large. And so when we pray this prayer, it should bring to mind these things that Luther says, all of these other points along the way that that God would bless those things so that our needs are met because we're all interconnected. We're not ultimately just our own. The third tension in this short passage is with the words today and daily. And the tension is trusting versus planning. Question, how should we manage our resources? Jesus says a little bit later, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Some of you really like hippie, barefoot, carefree Jesus. Like, I know, you, I know some of you well enough to be like, yes, this is my Jesus. But then comes along King Solomon. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, you slacker. <laughs> Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during the harvest. Later in Proverbs 21, the plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit, but anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor. That sounds like something that's printed on a coffee mug at Dave Ramsey's headquarters. So what is it? Is it it don't worry about your needs or is it plan for the future? Well, this requires a little bit of context. Many people, maybe most people in Jesus' audience, remember this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Galilee, northern Israel, rural farmland, fishing villages. These are the working poor. They would have needed to find work each day, and they would have been paid for their work that day. We, re- we see this clearly in the parable of the workers in Matthew 20. We won't read it all because it's long, but it starts with this guy who has a field that needs to be harvested, and there's all these guys just hanging out in the marketplace, and the landowner comes in and goes, hey, you want to work in my field today? And the guy goes, yes, I do. And so he brings all these people back into his field, and at the end of the day, they all line up, and he gives them their pay for the day. And this wouldn't have been a one-off thing. This would have been the way many people survived. I'm going to go out today. I'm going to look for work. Hopefully, they will pay me today so that I can go buy food before the market closes so that I have food for my family day after day after day. 
Jesus is also confident that his audience knows their Bibles. These are all Jewish people that would have been steeped in the story of Israel because he wants them to think about Israel in the wilderness. In Exodus 16, we read a story about manna. The people of God are in the wilderness and there's no food and they're complaining about it. And what God does is He rains down this supernatural bread from heaven every single day. And the people go out into uh, the desert and they scoop this off the ground and they make bread with it. But some of them save it for tomorrow. What happens to it after it gets saved? Anybody know? It rots. Yeah, you're not supposed to save it for tomorrow. You're supposed to use what you need today, and there will be fresh manna tomorrow. God's provision for them was an exercise in growing their faith. So what do we do with this? We could, we could just say, well, we live in a different culture, right? Most of us get reasonably large sums of money every couple of weeks. Or maybe we own a business and we complete large projects and they have big payouts that last for a period of time. We're trained to set money aside for emergencies and for retirement and wise people have a a, a track record of robust savings accounts. But some of us, and some of us, maybe that's you. You've got a, a pretty good nest egg. You've got a pretty good job. Your bills get paid. There's extra left over. But some of us, especially in the season that we're in, live in a pretty different climate, a little bit more faith-filled life. Maybe we don't live daily, but we do live paycheck to paycheck. Every two weeks, the money comes in, and then the money goes out, and then we've got to make it last until the money comes in again. And so, give us this day our daily bread might become give us this pay period our daily bread but it's still an exercise in faith and trust. That's not to negate the wisdom of planning, but it is to say that there are circumstances where God uses a lack of resource to draw us close to Him. And if you're here this morning and you're pretty financially stable, you could always voluntarily put yourself into a position where you need to trust in God to provide. Classic example of this is uh, George Mueller and his orphanage. Many of you probably know the story of uh, Mueller in England. He ran this orphanage for decades. And if you read his autobiography, it's a bunch of journal entries. And I was going to quote uh, one of the entries for you, but there's, I couldn't find one because I was just overwhelmed. There's like hundreds of them in this book. And they all go something like this. I woke up today. We don't have any money and we don't have any food and we're going to starve to death. God will provide. And sometime in the afternoon, some random person shows up with like a bunch of bread or a bunch of money or a bunch of like old silverware that they can sell over and over and over, like literally hundreds of pages of Mueller saying, and then God provided, and then God provided, and then God provided. And the whole reason he lived his life this way is because he refused to tell people that he was in need. He said, I'm going to run this ministry completely dependent on God and let him show himself faithful in my life. He said this, truly it is worth being poor and greatly tried in faith for the sake of having such precious daily proof of the loving interest which our kind Father takes in everything that concerns us. How could our Father do otherwise? He gave us the greatest possible proof of His love when He gave us His own Son. Surely He will also freely give us all things. And not that everyone's called to live a life like Mueller did. But what I recognize when I think about that is that I live a life of self-sufficiency when I have money. I've talked about this before, but me and Joanna's philosophy of buying things is very different. Um, When I want a book, I go on Amazon and I buy the book. When Joanna wants a book, she prays about it. She asks the Lord for it. And invariably, and I I promise you this happens every single week, mostly, she will come home and say, 
there's this school book that I've wanted for Karis, or this book that I heard about on a podcast that I thought would be really interesting, or uh, Nora needs new socks, or whatever the thing is, and I've been praying about it, and I went to the thrift store, and they had it brand new for a quarter. Or somebody came, I, I, I met somebody in the park, and they, they had an extra pair of socks that they didn't need, and they said, hey, you want some socks? Or, there's just all these weird, that didn't happen, but the book thing happens all the time. There's constantly these story after story after story in my wife's life because she chooses to trust in God for her needs. And maybe that seems silly, and I obviously think it sounds silly because when I want a book, I just go buy a book. But the closeness she has to Jesus in those moments of saying, hey, God, this is something I want. Will you provide it? See, that's, that's just something I don't get to experience. My response to meeting simple needs is a window into my own heart that I don't really think that God needs to provide. I mean, sure, He can, but I don't really need Him to. And because of that, I miss out on seeing Him demonstrate His love for me. So, should we live off just enough to get by? Or should we save and plan and invest? If you have extra resources, should you just give them all away? Or should you plan to steward them differently to make a greater kingdom impact in the future? I have no idea. That's not my decision to make for you. But like most things that are complicated in the Scriptures, we should all be people that ask that question and listen to God for an answer, that we should expect that answer to look different than the expectations that the culture has for us, and that that answer might change from season to season of our lives, because God is going to want us to do things differently as we live and grow and mature. The fourth tension, the final tension this morning in this verse centers on the word bread. And the tension is necessity versus lifestyle. The question would be what resources should we expect to have? See, I don't eat a lot of bread because it makes my stomach hurt, so I just don't pray this prayer. that's, That's the way I get around it. But I was, uh, uh, I, I, was leaving, I, was, I, was, I was leaving work this week, and I park around back in the alley, and so I was leaving, and I drove around the parking lot out of the front, and there was an event going on, and uh, it was a pretty classy event. I don't know what it was. It was a couple dozen people. There were all these cars in the parking lot, and they were like, they were so new, I thought they might have not been real. Like, I, I, I just thought, is, what is that? Is that, from a, is that like a movie prop? That's such a weird car. And they were just brand new, like 22 models or 23 models or whatever, and just weird shaped and all kinds of crazy lights and things. And I was driving my 04, which feels like not that long ago, but that's a pretty old car. And I thought, man, why don't I get a brand new car? They just came out with the Jeep Wagoneer again, super cool, starting at $60,000. It's like, that's crazy. (laughs) Bread is a symbol of sustenance, right? Food that is necessary for survival. And this part of the prayer does a couple things. It, it recognizes our limitations as human beings. We need to eat. And it's a good thing. It's how God made us. But the tension comes when we balance this real material need with the dangers of wealth. Proverbs again Chapter 30, keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? 
or I might have nothing and steal and profaning the name of my God. This is another prayer in Scripture that I don't really want to pray. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I kind of want to pray, just give me riches. Because again, I feel like I would manage them better than everyone else ever. Including Solomon, who didn't do it very well either. But I understand the warning that, that wealth draws us away from dependence on God. It feels kind of like the, you know, the lottery winning statistic. Um, like 70% of people who win the lottery lose it or spend it all within five years. And we're like, nah, that won't be me. When I hit the Powerball, it's going to be different. Got to play the Powerball to win it. But um, Jesus has some words about this sort of thing. In Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But anybody ever talk to themselves? But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This idea of the pursuit of wealth, the accumulation of stuff, over and over and over again, not just this text, but throughout the Scriptures, God is, says, like, this is a dangerous place to be. It's difficult to be someone with money. And the world that we live in has made this part of the prayer really difficult. If God is asking us to pray for our material needs, well, then what do we actually need? I have a mortgage, I have health insurance, I have a car that needs gas, a water bill, a cell phone, a gym membership, a Disney Plus subscription, a coffee habit. Are those needs? All of them? Probably not. I could probably get rid of Disney Plus. <laughs> Maybe the coffee thing. Spencer would disagree with me, I guess, but I mean... We could sell our house, live in a tent, give the rest of our money away to the poor. Is that wisdom? Is that what God's calling us to? Or is daily bread, in this case, a stand-in for a whole set of necessities that our society requires that we have? If I didn't have a car, I wouldn't die, but there's a lot of stuff I'd be prevented from doing. If we got rid of our phones, we wouldn't die, but how would that work exactly? And maybe that's a failure of my own imagination to lean into a kind of poverty that God is calling me to, but it just seems like those are things that are important. But then we can go to the other side, right? How many pairs of shoes do I need? How many pairs of pants should I have? How much of my income should go to that mortgage? When my car breaks, should I have it fixed or should I buy another one? Should I buy a used one or a brand new one? And again, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not you. This is a question that needs to be wrestled with by every single one of us. Because God is doing different things in each one of our lives as it relates to stewardship of resources. But I did find this, the, um, I was reading this week in the work of John Stott, who is a, a British uh, Christian leader. And he, he wrote this, this document called An Evangelical Commitment to Simple Lifestyle. It's about five pages long. It's not long. You can look it up on the internet. It's really helpful, I think. And I want to read a little bit of it. 
he says, we accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine, and between the service of God and slavery to fashion. And I think that doesn't answer any questions for us this morning, but it does give us some categories to wrestle with. When we, when we buy something, are we buying something because we really need it or because it's a luxury? And if it is a luxury, is it a luxury that we should have? Or is that resource that would be better used somewhere else? When we pursue the things that we just like to do, is that a creative, life-giving hobby that contributes to the flourishing of the world Or is it something that we're just doing to impress people? Do we use our money modestly or to show off? Do we occasionally celebrate big because because people are, are wonderful or the occasion demands it and we have amazing parties that are good and glorious? Or do we live a lifestyle of continuous extravagance and gluttony? Do we see our material resources as tools to serve God, or are we using them because the culture has demands on us that we need to fulfill? However we answer that question, if we're going to be people that pray this prayer, I think we need to mean it. We don't want to be people that mock God when we pray this prayer. If we request that God meets our needs, but then we believe that we don't really need Him to, I'm going to pray, give, me this day, or give us this day our daily bread, but I'm going to go take care of it anyway. Don't worry about it, God. Or if we pray that prayer and then we're frustrated when God doesn't give us the things that we want, give us this day our daily bread, but what I really wanted was a steak. I think we're out of alignment with what God has for us. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Am I content with God providing the things that I really need? Or am I discontented until I have everything I want? And this is something that God needs to teach us, and we have to be willing to learn it. Paul says in Philippians, chapter 4, I have learned, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. Next time you buy an exercise shirt that has, I can do all things through him that strengthens me on it, recognize that Paul is talking about being homeless and hungry. But even Paul says, I had to learn this. I had to learn how to trust in God for the things that I need. Paul's secret is what the rich man in Jesus' parable missed. Asking God to meet our needs creates a posture of heart where we begin to see Jesus Himself as our riches and the stuff that we have as less important. Jesus, in His own moment of hunger in Matthew 4, says it like this, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Jesus reorients his whole focus away from his physical hunger to the recognition that God is his ultimate resource. This is why we are called to live lives where we fast regularly. Yes, we are called to be people who fast and to live lives of simplicity. Because for most of us, even those of us that are struggling financially right now, and I know many of us are, we have so much stuff 
that we need to actively put ourselves in places where we need to trust in Christ more than our possessions. We need to put ourselves in places where asking for our needs to be met actually matters. And it's definitely a habit that we all need to practice, and sometimes it's an involuntary circumstance that God places upon us. Regarding this point in the prayer, Derwin Gray asks the question, if God answered all of your prayers, would your life become more holy? Would I begin to look more like Jesus if I got that job paying $40,000 a month? Honestly, probably not. If we become people that honestly pray this part of the prayer, over time, our hearts will be reoriented to not need as much because we have Christ. John Chrysostom, father of the early church, says it this way, He is not rich who is surrounded by many possessions, but he who does not need many possessions. And he is not poor who possesses nothing, but he who requires many things. We ought to consider this to be the distinction between poverty and wealth. When, therefore, you see anyone longing for many things, esteem him of all men the poorest, even though he possesses all manner of wealth. Again, when you see one who does not wish for many things, judge him to be of all men most affluent, even if he possesses nothing. Chris Austin says that the posture of heart that says, I don't need a lot is the one that is wealthiest, the one who, even though they have many things, is constantly looking for more. That's true poverty. And this framework is totally countercultural, isn't it? When was the last time you heard this anywhere out in the world? This is one of the ways that our mind is being renewed by the Spirit of God. So some of us in this room are struggling to make ends meet right now, and the temptation is to envy and jealousy, to curse God because He doesn't seem to be meeting our needs as we see them. And others of us have more material wealth than we need, and our financial security tempts us to ignore God as our actual provision. Give us this day our daily bread is a reminder for all of us that we ultimately need to place our trust in Christ and not in the things that we have. So, I'm going to see if we've got some questions. It looks like we do. How do we do this as a community and implement this now, all of us in unity? Us is for our community, not just a prayer for home, for us to wrestle alone. Yeah, that's a good question. It's really hard to be, um, to know how to be aware of the needs in our community, right? Like, um, one, of, one of the things that I run up against a lot is if, if we have extra resources, maybe someone will say, hey, I got a, you know inheritance thing or a bonus and I want to give a gift to the church and I want you to use it. Whoever has need, I want you to figure it out. You know, that's kind of one of the roles that the church has historically played. We see that in Acts, the people laid their money at the apostles' feet and the apostles distributed it to those who had need. And so we'll get a couple thousand dollars put in the church bank account and just be on the lookout for need. But in our culture, and, and I don't know if it's worse in the Northwest, but this is where we live, we don't want to tell people we're in need. We are, we are proud, and I, I, get, I get that. We, are, we, are, um, we want everybody to think that we've got it all together. We see people who live at a certain lifestyle, and maybe they can afford to live at a certain lifestyle, and we can't, but we've got a credit card that can make it look like we're living in a certain lifestyle. And the shame, especially, and for everyone, but traditionally and, and maybe especially for, for men who are primary breadwinners often, to just say, like, man, it's, 
it's not working. I can't, can't make it go. I need help. Like, that's a hard place to get to. And so part of it has to do with recognizing our own need when we have it and being willing to be open and share that. And maybe it's not with, you know, standing up on Sunday and declaring it, but if you're in a community group, and, and, and you should be, you've got six, eight people that really know you and care about you and love you, you can be in that space and say, hey, it's really hard. I need prayer because our finances are not great. Well, maybe there's an opportunity for the church to meet some of that need. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that we should be people that are paying attention. We should be people that, that have our ears open to other people's need. I'm so self-centered. I've got so many problems of my own that, that to open up my perspective and actually pay attention to what's going on in everyone else's lives, that's a real paradigm shift. But I need to be somebody that practices that kind of observation of asking questions, of listening really to conversations to see how can, we, how can we meet need for one another. And maybe I don't have the resources personally, but maybe I know someone who does. Maybe, maybe there's a need that can be met that I can help connect you to somebody else for. I think that those are the main barriers to this of just not, um, not being willing to open our eyes to need and not being willing to be honest about our own need. Second question, does the command to trust daily only apply to wealth or could it be to the resources of time, energy, or something not monetarily defined? Sure. Yeah. Many of us have more time, more energy, more physical strength, more mental ability, more uh, skills than we have money. And we're, we should trust God for that. It's one of the things that I think about when I, when I think about prayer. We're not, I mean, prayer in general. Like, we oftentimes, at least I am often tempted to... Um, neglect prayer if I've got more important stuff to do, right? Like, it's a busy day. But the reality is, is if I commit to prayer, which on my to-do list, I, I just don't figure out where that fits. If I commit to spending time, my best time with the Lord, He usually multiplies that time and helps me get all my other stuff done. says, what does this question say? Like the thorn in Paul's side, is it possible to leverage weakness to draw us nearer to Christ in a similar way? Yeah. So, regarding things that aren't money, I think so. I think that's, I think that's what God is doing almost all the time, right? Every, every day you walk out into it and every single moment is an opportunity for you to engage with God. You can either engage with Him in the way that He's drawing you to, or you can reject Him and go another way. And these are hundreds, maybe thousands of little decisions throughout your day. And He's constantly calling you back to Himself. And many times the way He's doing that is through difficult things. You bump up against something and stub your toe, and He wants you to run to Him. And if the only way He's going to get our attention is by putting a lot of Legos on the floor, then that's what He's going to do to get you to run to Him. How do we walk the line of helping people without being taken advantage of? I have a tendency to become a doormat, but in avoiding that, I've become untrusting. That's a really good question. Um, so, a couple, a couple things. There's a really good book called When Helping Hurts. You haven't, if you're interested in, in kind of um, what it looks like to be a generous, charitable person in a way that is um, fruitful, not just for your own self-esteem, but actually for the people you're helping, uh, I would recommend that. Um, 
There's also a, a training program that Love Inc. does, and I think we're going to do it here at the fall. Love Inc. is one of our church partners. We, um, we help fund them every month, and then we have a, a cabinet of um, household goods. Um, you've, you've probably heard me ask for soap and detergent and toothbrushes and stuff, and we collect that, and then somebody who's coming into a situation where they have a new home that isn't supplied with anything, we make packets to give to them, and we do that in partnership with Love Inc., they have a really cool model called Redemptive Compassion, which asks that question of how do we help people? How do we build them up? How do we help them flourish in a way that um, protects resources, but also um, doesn't allow people to abuse them? Uh, and uh, that's a course that I think we're probably going to be doing uh, in the fall, three or four weeks. Um, but I think just right now what I would say is if you're going to be gracious, if you're going to be kind, if you're going to be generous, if you are going to model the love of God pouring yourself out for the good of the other, you are going to be taken advantage of. How do I know this? Because Jesus is taken advantage of all the time by all of us. We are constantly misusing the goodness and the grace that He gives to us. We are constantly spending it badly. And He still loves us. He still cares for us. He still gives us more and more. So, I think the idea that you would be able to um, use your resources to help others without ever being taken advantage of, I think you need to get that out of your mind. I think you need to work on being wise, developing relationships with people if possible, knowing what they really need. Um, but just recognize that there are going to be times where you're taken advantage of. And I would rather be, I'd rather us be generous people who sometimes get taken advantage of than stingy people who never get taken advantage of because we're too guarded with what we should be giving away. All right. That seemed to work all right. <laughs> we're going to take communion. Jesus in John 6 he says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So every week we gather around this table, this bread and this cup, and we acknowledge that Christ is our food. As much as we are frail human beings that need material sustenance, ultimately, as His people, we feast on Christ. Christ is what we need. More of Jesus is what truly satisfies us. And we have a Savior who is willing to give over and over and over again. And this meal that we participate in together as a body is a reminder of that that Jesus is our food. And so, as the, the band comes back up and plays, as we sing, come down, take the bread and the cup, Jesus' broken body and His shed blood, and recognize that He is the true nourishment for your heart. And whether you're in a place where you think you're pretty self-sufficient or where you're in a place where you don't know how to make the ends meet and, and the paycheck is way too far away. I just pray that you would take a few moments and just rejoice in the fact that even then, even in that, Jesus' love for you is great and His provision for you can be trusted. If you want to sit or stand as we sing, if you want to come up to the prayer rugs and kneel, you're more than welcome. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church 
at revelationcda.com.